0: Greetings, earthlings and intergalactic electric warriors alike. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Crash Bang Boom podcast. Today's guest is drummer Andy Grinelli of the Distillers as well as Seized Up. And Andy and I get into all sorts of goodness ranging from his 6'6 six six frame and the opposite trajectory he and I had with studying the drums, the awesomeness of both the early 90s and the Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction record, Clown Feet, Spiral Staircase gigs, and a whole lot more. So I hope y'all enjoy the chat. Crash Bang Boom Podcast can be found on iTunes, Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Luminary, Google Play, Podbean, and Amazon Music Podcast, as well as many others. Feel free to check out any of the previous 200-plus episodes and give me a like, a subscription, and or a positive review. Shout out to my sponsor, New Orleans Record Press. If you're looking to release some vinyl, hit them up at neworleansrecordpress.com to check out all the electroplating, mastering, design, packaging, vinyl, coloring options, and more. And they even got a real-time quote generator to add it all up and keep tabs on all that goodness. They also print 12- and 7-inch records in 150- and 180-gram variants, and they do small runs of 100 and larger runs up into the thousands. So hit them up, and that's NewOrleansRecordPress.com. All right, without further ado, here we go. Andy Grinelli, Crash, Bang, Boom. Crowds go mad with joy. Yep, yep, give the power power. Yeah! All right, Andy Grinelli of The Distillers and Seized Up, formerly Darker My Love, formerly Nerve Agents. How are you doing, my
1: man? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I appreciate it. I love the podcast, and uh, I'm stoked to be here. Nice, man. Not sure
0: what The Distillers are, are getting into, and we can certainly get into that, but uh, what have you been doing your, with yourself in the absence of touring and gigs and you know whatnot with uh, what would most likely be downtime, at least from those creative outlets? So uh,
1: I have a day job, and uh, I've been just cranking away at my day job. And I work for uh, Bell Helmets and Giro Helmets, and I run the test lab and the prototype shop for them. So, you know, during the pandemic, everything's been closed, right? Offices are closed. No one's around. Uh, people are working remote. But the nature of my job is that uh, I kind of have my own space in the building, um, being the prototype shop and the test lab. So I've still been working on product by myself here in the shop. So I've been still going to work every day and kind of doing the same thing, which in a lot of ways has been nice, to be honest, you know, with everything being so f- insane to kind of keep a uh, same routine going has been great. Nice. How'd you fall into the world of, of helmets out there in L.A. if we didn't specify your location? Uh, I, well, actually, I live in Santa Cruz. Oh, you're in Santa Cruz. OK. Yeah. Northern California. I have always worked in some form or fashion in like the bike industry or action sports, <laughs> you know. Gotcha. Um, if I wasn't working for like a skateboard company or a snowboard company or bikes, um, you know, it's always been something like that. And um, I moved to Santa Cruz in 2010 from San Francisco. Um, and in San Francisco, I was working for a bike shop, um, moved to Santa Cruz and started working for a bike company here in town. And then uh, Chuck Platt, who is the bass player for Good Riddance, um, worked for Jiro mm. And I'd known Chuck since I was like 16, you know, um, just from playing in bands and stuff. And uh, there was an opening in the shop, and shop work is kind of up my alley, so it just all happened. all came together, and I've been here now like 11 years. Wow, <laughs> damn, that's a hell of a stretch. Yeah, it's been good, you know, as far as places to work go, um, it's a good one. You know, people are cool, the industry's cool, and fuck, uh, you I don't know.
0: Yeah, man. Uh, you know, it's a longstanding sort of phrase when people say that they found punk rock in the sort of tectonic shift, the realization that ensued. And But you're a guy who has primarily, at least to my knowledge, played a lot of punk rock. So I guess what was that realization or moment for you that that led you in this direction?
1: Well, in a lot of ways, the punk thing kind of came out of my environment. Um, when I was younger and living in the Bay Area, there's this place in Berkeley called 924 Gilman Street and you know it's like famous for Green Day and Rancid and Jawbreaker and all these East Bay punk bands and you know in the 90s when I was in junior high and high school you know it was like the refuge you know and kind of had like a weird um, well I like divorced parents and I had to go to my dad's house and it was like always just kind of like a weird thing but I was able to find out about Gilman Street through friends. My dad lived in East Bay, and uh, there was a kid next door that kind of turned me on to the place. And then um, in junior high, met other kids who through skateboarding actually, who were into punk rock and skateboarding because it's kind of like what went together, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Thrasher magazine had like uh, the um, music column and stuff, and skateboard videos always had great music and so like learning about it through that a lot of times those bands were Gilman street bands you know so we would go and learn and figure it out just seeing that these guys are just like me and i could do that too so i did
0: yeah i the 90s i, I think back on it as well i too was in junior high um in 91 uh, i was still in junior high so i think i got just got into college, or high school around 92 3 4 5 something like that uh through those years But yeah, it was such a crazy time. I mean, I was going to the Lollapaloozas and getting into just so much music that that had dropped. And I talk about the year of 1991 alone with the diversity of output from so many bands and what an incredible, outrageously incredible year that was for music. And uh, I'm just glad that I was alive and around and going to see it at that time.
1: Yeah, the 90s were great. You know That documentary or movie, The Year Punk Broke, have you seen that? Yeah, man. It's such a trip to think about the 90s kind of being like this like last really innocent kind of time, you know, where you could be a kid, go outside and not, you know, before the Internet, before 9-11, you know, before all this stuff happened. Absolutely. And um, society was just a different. It was different. And I remember it. You know, I think there's like a nostalgia about the 90s because of that you know and then you watch movies like kids you know and you're like oh like wow that's like i knew these people you know like that is and it's just so documented for sure like i that was me you know (laughs) and uh you can always like look back to it now things are completely different yeah man Uh, When you think back to some of the
0: bands that you were into uh, when you were first finding uh, the drums and playing in bands and kind of getting out, were there any drummers, local or otherwise, that happened to have made an impact on you in those formative years when you were kind of just learning your way around the instrument as
1: well? Yeah, I mean, in junior high school, like, everybody loved Rancid. And Brett Reed was an awesome guy and really welcoming and nice, and you could talk to him, you know? And I just loved, you know, I would always watch the drummer. i go to Gilman Street and go to these shows and always watch the drummer. And, you know, I'd always just watch Brett, watch him play, and I totally ripped, <laughs> you know, so much of my early playing off of him, you know? Sure, man. All those little fills and just stuff you do, you know? And I can't tell you he was, like, the best, technically best drummer, but he had he had that flavor, you know? Sure. And so for me it was was brett reed for sure um and then like later i also love like led zeppelin and bonham Ah, totally because that's just so undeniable you know you hear those songs and you're like like black dog rock and roll you know you're like wow this is the ocean you know yeah man this song is good because the drums are awesome 100%
0: 100% and what's amazing about Bonham is that you know he had such a style and such a specific sound that you could hear that on the records but they were capturing his live sound so then when you'd hear them live he had that sound as well It was one of those kind of rare moments where uh, it, it transferred to both live and recording and the guy had such an undeniable presence feel groove sound everything in between yeah I mean it's yeah, yeah. why well, I, I don't what else can you even say right.
1: Yeah, he was perfect. You know, his playing is perfect. Totally, man.
0: Uh, It's funny. I kind of gravitated towards, like, some of the the punk rock guys, I guess, that maybe were a little bit more of the the chops end of it. And, you know, I mean, even if it was like early Police with Stuart Copeland or uh, the drummer of No Means No, I think that's John Wright. I forget which of the Wright brothers. But those guys that could like kind of had punk rock attitude and spirit, uh, but also kind of had some chops to boot, you know. Uh, And I I dug those like those, those almost those two guys in particular. I was like, man, I really love the spirit of, of what they're playing, you know.
1: yeah. It's a funny thing to play fast and powerful too. Yes. And it's a lot, it's so much of its technique, you know, and you kind of, like I kind of did it backwards where I I think like, you know, like they talk about like the Mueller technique, you know, to, to kind of like that, like whipping motion with your arms and realizing later in life, like, oh, like (laughs) I was kind of doing like, kind of figure that out, out of like necessity, trying to like, just keep up, you know, I hear you. I never took drum lessons, you know, so I I kind of found out about all this stuff later. And then as like a young person, too, I was kind of like a I don't know how to say it, but maybe a dumbass, (laughs) you know, just thought like I could figure it out on my own.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I withstood taking lessons for some years and partially because one of my high school uh, teachers, my band instructor at the time, he said, if you're going to take lessons, make sure they don't deprive you of your style. You sound like you have a little bit of a style. So if you're going to go take lessons, at least keep your style in mind. And then technically you can learn what you need to learn from them and then build that up on top of your style. But don't forget your style. And I was like, wow, man, that's what a, what a fucking great line that was. I still remember it to this day.
1: I mean, that's one of the reasons and at least the reasons I made up for myself why I didn't take lessons, because I thought you were going to go to these places and they would just kind of take away all your flavor. You know, they'd tell you, like, oh, you got to hold the sticks this way. And it's all got to be this kind of regimented thing. And then not learning till later in life that, like, these are just techniques you have in your toolbox. You don't, you know, you, you, you apply them to, your, to yourself. You don't live by them. You know, there's a gray area there. It's not as black and white.
0: Absolutely, man. When you think back to some of those bands that you were into at the time when you were a kid, are there some of those that stood the test of time? Because, you know, I mean, I grew up, uh, I was born in, the, I guess, 76. So I was definitely around for the 80s. So while I wasn't playing drums necessarily in the 80s, I was definitely listening to all the hair metal and then the cult and then like Guns N' Roses in 87 and all that stuff. And You know, some of it uh, didn't necessarily age so well. So I'm just curious of some of the stuff that you came up on. If you listen back to it and you're like, you know what? This still has it. This is still killer.
1: I I was born in 79. So kind of, you know, same with you, like with the Guns N' Roses thing. Appetite for Destruction came out and you were like, wow, you know, this is insane. Totally, man. And I was in the sixth grade. No, I think I was in the fifth grade when that came out. Mm. And thinking like, like, oh, this is like what bad kids listen to, right? Yeah. And then kind of like looking around and being like, well, I like it, you know? <laughs> is this okay that I like it? And the drums were so clear, you know? So in the fourth grade is when I was exposed to like being able to play the drums. And in my elementary school, they were like, you could do band now that you're a fourth grader. Here are the list of instruments. And we had like an assembly. And they're like, you could play the horn or the clarinet or this or that or the drums and it was just looked really cool you know it's like i want to do that you know that's what i want and so i had then in the fourth grade kind of been like on this like bend to be like where's the drums you know what are drums and so when appetite for destruction came out and you could hear them i was like oh shit those are drums you know oh totally hell yeah mr brownstone you know what i mean (laughs) crank it what is that? You know, mom, <laughs> what's what does he mean? You know, and my mom being like, Fuck, what? Like, this isn't, no, son. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, man. Conversely,
0: there, there are some music that my parents were into. And I was like, ah, I can't be digging the shit that my parents were into. Then, inevitably, I found that I, I liked it as I got older, you know, and like, funny enough, like early country music, like all the Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings and George Jones and like, and, and my mom, my mother listened and like would sing Lou Harris songs. And because she was listening to that, she also listened to Tom Waits. So she kind of had like a strange little pot that she was stirring, uh, sonically with that. But those are like some of the, all those aforementioned artists are all artists that I kind of like ended up gravitating towards, despite sort of dismissing it, early on because my parents were into it. It's kind of funny. I mean, do you have any of those bands that you got into more recently that you might've dismissed at the time?
1: No, for me, I, I kind of just always liked it. I didn't care. Like if my parents liked it, I wasn't like, ugh, that's lame. You know I mean? And really it was just my mom. Like if my mom liked it, I was like, okay, uh, maybe Hall and Oates. You know, my mom was like really into Hall and Oates. I thought that shit sucked, you know? But you know, like credence. I was like, I still do and always will love John Fogarty's voice. Dude, I love Cosmo's drums. Like, man, you know, that's some awesome stuff. And I'll put on like Green River and play the whole record just to practice, you know, because it's awesome. It's fun. It's great. I love it. Hell yeah,
0: man. You mentioned uh, CCR. I mean, in, in thinking about that, I think about people with raspy voices, and we can certainly talk about Brody's, but I mean, I love Fleawood Mac because I love Stevie Nicks' voice. She has that rasp. Uh, obviously, John Fogerty has it. I mentioned Tom Waits. He's on another end of the spectrum, as is somebody like Howlin' Wolf, but I have historically loved people that have a little bit of inner distortion and how it just kind of the voice naturally breaks up, and Brody is certainly uh, a case of that, so I guess we we can talk a little bit about the Distillers, but uh, how'd you end up getting that Distillers gig in the first place?
1: So, you know, being in from the Bay and Gilman Street, you know, those Rancid guys were around a lot, and I knew them. And my band, Nerve Agents, played a lot, and we were around a lot, and the band started getting more and more popular. Um, We had two records on Revelation, and then tim and lars approached us from rancid and they were like you know do you, we want you guys third record to be on hellcat which is you know epitaph hellcat and so we were like yeah okay and at the time brody was married to tim uh from rancid and um uh, brody had just started distillers she had kim playing bass and matt young playing drums And they just she released a seven inch four songs and then they had like a demo. We were bringing them on on shows. they were opening for us for nerve agents all the time and coming up to San Francisco. And then we go down to L.A. and they'd open for us down there. And, you know, so we became fast friends and, um, you know, Brody and I became friends. We became close. And uh, as time went on, they had some inner struggle in the band and. She ended up breaking the band up and, um, you know, she was going to quit and just stop playing. But then she had also had this tour booked and it was like an opening slot for Rancid and AFI and it was in the winter of 2000. It was going to be like a big tour. It had like a lot of promotion behind it and she had no one to play and we would talk. I was like, I'll do it. You know, I already know these songs. Like, let's do it. And so I did it. And I got uh, the bass player from the Nerve Agents to fill in as well. And then after the tour, it was kind of like looking around. And um, Nerve Agents, you know, man, I just all I've ever wanted to do is play. You know, I want to play drums. I want to go on tour. And I dropped out of college to do this, you know, and I wanted to do it. And the other guys in the band kind of didn't have the time and capacity to do it as much as I wanted to. So... I tried to do both and um, unfortunately ended up kind of killing the nerve agents. It just didn't work out, you know, and it was a time where I think it's different now. Like, guys, I think players can be in all kinds of different bands now and you just make it all work. But back then I felt like you had to be loyal to your people and you couldn't do that. You know, you couldn't be like, you know, the hard part about being a drummer is you're not you're not your own artist in a way. You're you're like a complimentary piece. So you end up kind of playing with other people like you rely on them for sure. You know, and if they're not like on the same page as you timing wise or schedule, like, dude, it gets tough. So as a drummer, as an artist, you're trying to you're trying to make your own way, too. Sure. And then you find yourself at this place where the other guys in the band aren't there either. You know, so it's like, what do you do? You know, so I was kind of felt like a choice had to be made. So I made it, you know, I made the choice of working more and that's the choice I've always tried to make to work more. Um, I think work is good. It keeps you honest. And I mean, we live in a society where you got to make that money. <laughs> so if you're not working, you're not making that money and simple, you know, I grew up poor, so I don't want to go back. Don't want to go back there again. And so i fucking work and that's what I did. And that's when I joined the distillers nice man I guess once you
0: started playing with them beyond that that first tour it sounds like and y'all and you became a member uh, what were some of the cooler gigs that that you played because I've definitely seen quite a few online it looked like like y'all played some really awesome shows
1: yeah we did I mean we've done everything together Brody and I you know um, toured the world and uh, just played with every band you could think of you know um but, you know, I mean, things of note, like growing up in the 90s and like being of my age, like Red Hot Chili Peppers were like big for me, you know, and like Mother's Milk was like a big album. I like love that record. Fuck yeah, dude. Yeah. Which I, I mean, you know, Jack played on Mother's Milk, I think. Chad Smith came later, but. Um... No, Jack. So Jack Irons only
0: played on the song Fire, the Jimi Hendrix cover. Chad Smith is on all the other songs. And actually actually fish from Fishbone plays on another, uh, track on, on mother's milk. And then after that, it's all Chad Smith.
1: Okay. Well, you know, <laughs> um, some great LA moments were we're practicing, going to LA and then being in the band, being in LA. And then we practice at, um, the studio is behind where Amoeba used to be and it's building. not there anymore, but the chili peppers had a place there too and so we were in there like all day long and then so were they and then we just kind of like all started hanging out like become friends and like like dude this is fucking flea (laughs) and then like showing up to practice and like kind of getting set up and you know hanging out and then hearing like chad and flea like jamming you know and being like dude this is sick (laughs) you know yeah man um and then like uh la is like such a trip because Everybody is there. And then you'll be and especially at these like practice studios, you're like, what the fuck? You know, like you'll be standing there and like James Brown walk by and you're like, Oh shit. And then uh, Chad Smith and Flea are like jamming in the next room and then the guy from Love and Rockets will pull up, you know, and you're like, Okay. <laughs> you know,
0: hey bud. Wow. That's really cool, man. Uh, of of some of those bigger shows, were there any particular ones that are especially memorable?
1: Yeah, I mean, like the Reading and Leeds festivals were always pretty huge. You know, it's like 90,000 people. I mean, we, did, we played in um, 2019, we did Reading and Leeds, and it's like, damn, you know, they just keep going. There's people for, for days. And that was great. That was a great feeling, too. And we played that festival in 2005 to 90,000 people, and that was great. And then to come back, you know, f- whatever, 15 years later and do it again, it's pretty badass, 14 years later. Absolutely. And then, you know, like doing those like arena tours and stuff, you know, it's just, it's fun, man. You know, it's uh, validating too that your hard work is paid off and you're out there doing it. You know, there's no better feeling really. You're your own boss on your own talent, you know, and your own hard work and you're out there playing in front of people who are into you. That's the frosting on the cake, you know? 100% man. And you look like a pretty tall guy. Uh, how tall are you? I'm 6'6. Six, six. So you're pretty fucking tall. <laughs> it's funny you bring this up right now, too, because I've been, and you know, we we're talking about like drums and um, I've been watching a lot of drummers and like interesting technique and more of like ergonomics and playing too. And noticing that like a lot of drummers, I'm always like, if you look at Bonham, you know, his snare drum's like here. You know, he's got it, like, tilted. He's got it, like, tilted towards him. But it's, it's like, up at his chest, kind of. And, uh, you know, just how do you get, like, that articulation and power through your stroke? And as a tall guy, and I have, like, long legs, too, you know? My legs would get in the way a lot. And I, like, look at pictures of myself from, like, back in the, you know, from throughout time or whatever and be, like, always noticing, like, my hand, top of my hand, my hand's always hitting, like, the top of my thigh, you know? So I've been working a lot in practice recently, especially in like, how high can I get this shit? <laughs> how high? C- and then also still having like the kind of, uh, posture. Like you see some drummers who sit all the way down, like Tommy Lee, like his thighs are like pointing up. Oh, totally. Like, dude, how do you do that? You know? Um, actually Bonham was kind of like that too. He sat really low as well. And, and he had that foot. dude, it's so fast. It's, I just don't know how they do it. Um, but, yeah, being tall, playing drums, it can be a challenge. You have to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed as well, I mean, I'm six, two, that's crazy
0: that you're that you're six, six. Uh, I've, when I watch people's foot technique, it's kind of funny because I'm like, I mean, I wear a size thirteen shoe, So almost any footboard still feels like like kind of small to my to my big, dumb foot. And it's one of those things as well. And I, yeah, I, I sat high and then I've been actually sitting lower, but never to the point where my knees were pointing up, which I've definitely seen Tommy Lee did that. A lot of people in the seventies did it. Dudes were, people were just sitting so low. And every time I see, you know, honestly, Chad Smith to this day still sits super low. And when I see that, I'm like, how do your knees take it? So, cause from my perspective, that's putting
1: all the pressure on your knees. I just feel like you'd be blowing your fucking knees out doing that. <laughs> Your knees, and also like to, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's just a balancing. I think it's like a lower core maybe thing too. Like you just have those muscles down there, and that's just kind of the way it all works out. But for me to have to play fast, you know, you're kind of like kicking up back and forth on the foot pedal on the footboard. You know, even that is like, you know, some some dudes kind of like bounce their heel back and forth, like or to the right and to the left, to get like triplets on the kick. You know, I go up and back. Um, I found just like go up the kickboard and catch it. You know, first stroke low, second higher and higher. Um, uh, you know, DW. So it's interesting too with your comment with the footboard and the being small and having big feet, which I also have clown feet too. Um, DW made the like long footboard, dude. I don't like it. It. Uh, I'm so used to playing the normal one. That's the one I rock, and then. You just find that like balance point, uh, you know, back as far on the footboard. You just find you, you just it's a it's a balance thing. It's all a balance thing. Absolutely, man. Uh, well, it, we we mentioned some
0: of the like cooler big shows and whatnot that you play with the distillers. I always like to ask people when they played shows and you think about the highs to think back like in the, at the early point of some of the, the shows that you played that might have been just completely fucking ridiculous for a myriad of reasons, whether that's just equipment malfunctions, strange crowds, strange bar, strange, whatever, strange, all of, all of it together, you know, compiled in one absurd gig or a few. So if you have any of those that you'd like to uh, impart here, uh, do tell.
1: We did <laughs> our first Europe tour was like, it was like 29 shows in 30 days. It was insane. It was like nonstop. No, day, it was one day off. And I think we were like kind of halfway through. We hadn't had a day off yet. And we were just wiped out. And um, the shows were, it was our, we we're playing with agnostic front. And those shows were fine. They're pretty big. And then our own shows in between and our own shows always were horrible. There's like no one there. And so we had our one of these days was like our own show. And it was in Lyon in France. And it was like, you know, um, the old part of Lyon where the streets are super narrow. And it's, you know, it's like a, it's an old city, you know, old European French city. And we get to this place it's called the Blue Banana We get out and it's like, Jesus Christ. Like, what is this fucking dump? You know, (laughs) we walk into the bar and it's literally it's just like the bar. And then there's like enough room for people to sit. And we're like, where are we going to play? And they're like, oh, no, the venue's upstairs. And you look in the back of the room and there's this like wrought iron, like circular staircase that goes up to the second floor.
0: Oh, wow. And
1: up there is a pallet with uh, like some plywood on it and that's the stage and it's big enough for like 25 people maybe and you know we're on this tour with like rented gear and all that stuff comes in these like giant road cases and like everything's really heavy and annoying and we're in this place and so we get back into the van and every we all kind of look at each other and we're like like let's get out of here just go right <laughs> we get in and our driver tour manager guy is like he's like really and we're like, yeah, fuck this. We're out. Like, we can't. We're too tired. Like, we're, we're going to die. if we, we can't play that. We can't just go. Right. And so he's like, OK. And he goes. <laughs> and we're in this like long sprinter van in this like little narrow street. And we get to the end of the thing and it starts to curve around. We can't make it. And this at this point, the promoter <laughs> sees what's going on. Is like he's like, like soccer blue. You know, <laughs> what are you doing? and we're like oh shit you know like go oh. you know he's running after us and we can't go so he's got to pop it in reverse and we would like dude dude <laughs> past the venue and the guys pounding on the van and he's like calling us sellouts and telling us we play disco and like all this stuff and all these like french insults you know and uh we bail <laughs> no way <laughs> We're all like in the back, like hiding under blankets, you know, like so you can't like don't don't look at me, you know, and uh, we split and man, his phone blew up for like three days of just the promoter being fucking pissed off. And uh, so we still we owe Leon a show. Oh
0: my God. That's hilarious, man. I only played one, uh, one show with a spiral staircase and it was in Houston, uh, Texas. And then it was, it was in like a warehouse. So the spiral staircase went up and up and up. And thankfully we didn't have road cases or any of that shit, but we got, we were a trio. We got all of our equipment up there and then we get up there and we realized that he had been, or they had been, whoever owned this place, they had been sending their dogs up there. So there was just like dog shit everywhere. I was like, wow, we just hauled like all this shit up a giant spiral staircase in a warehouse in the summer in Houston, Texas to play up on top of a roof in
1: front of nobody with dog shit everywhere. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, dude, I played a show in Houston. Oh, wait. Was it Houston or Dallas, dude? It was like one of those moments. You know, sometimes on tour, you have these moments where everything's like real bliss. Sure. And it was, it was in the summer. It was with the Nerve Agents, and it was fucking hot. But it was like in this warehouse... And uh, shit, man, it was like a warehouse art gallery kind of place. And just I remember sitting out there looking at it was Dallas and looking at Dallas and being like, this is beautiful. You know, it was really nice. Like, man, it was hot as balls, but the show was super fun. And you have those moments on tour and, you know, there wasn't like a ton of people there or anything, but it was just really great. You know, absolutely. You know, you like go in and you're like, this place is like a piece of shit. Right. And then they end up being, like, amazing, you know?
0: Yeah, man, that's the way it goes. Uh, well, with the Distillers, man, is there a record coming out? Or what, what's
1: going on with that? Yeah, so we've had a record in the can now for, like, almost a year. But, dude, the pandemic has just, like, thrashed everything. And um, we could put it out, but it's kind of like the kind of record where you, you got to play it, you know? And it's, it's the kind of songs that, like, it will be so much better live. I mean, it will be so much better if you can have those songs be played live. And it's not just the record being released, you know, it might be like an old school way of doing it, but it's like, we kind of believe like you put out a record, you play it, you know, just put, you know, we're not that kind we're not like the Beatles, you know, um, <laughs> where you just put records out and don't play. Like it's, it's about the live experience, you know? Sure. So we're kind of, Looking for the right time. And I think it's coming. Although, fuck, dude, you know, now with this Delta variant, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what hap- comes from Lollapalooza last weekend or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah, it's completely up in the air, man. Uh, drum collection
0: wise and looking back in, on varying videos throughout the years, I've seen you playing all kinds of different kits. Obviously, if you're in another country that's rented or whatever, but uh, drum collection wise,
1: what's your go to kit uh, presently? Right now, I kinda, I have, I'm playing uh, for Ludwig, which I'm very fortunate and very stoked to be a part of the Ludwig family as a Bonham fan. And Uli Salazar at Ludwig is a, a real awesome dude, and I love him. He's great. Super supportive. Uh, I have a Vista Light kit from them and a classic maple kit. Oh, nice. And uh, I kind of go back and forth between loving them both. All great kits, man recently distillers did a like a live stream thing around christmas time and i played the classic maple and it sounded great you know so probably the next touring cycle we do i'll probably play the classic maple but the new vista lights sound really great you know they just Mm -hmm. dude i love the sound of of vista lights and um my practice kit i have at home is uh I have two, I play uh, Vistalite. I have like a, a early 70s amber Vistalite with like all the sizes that I scored. Um, and I play that, that's like my practice kit. And then I also have set up a uh, like a little three-ply 2012-14 um, three-ply uh, maple mahogany kit. And that thing's pretty pretty awesome too. The You know, it's interesting like, you know, some drums just have that like special size and like a 20 by 12 kick is uh, really one of those drums, you know. I agree. I got a 20 by
0: 14. It's a it's a sonar kind of jazz style, thin shell you know, harken back to those Ludwig, Gretsch, uh, Slingerland, etc. kind of jazz kits, 2012-14. And yeah, when I, when you sit behind it, it makes you play different. The The tones are very pure, very awesome, very warm. And the bass drum in particular is
1: just like magic. Yeah, dude. I mean, ambassador heads, no hole, no porthole in the front. And um, it's just unreal. Like Those drums sound so great. Right on. Well man it was uh, fun talking to you Andy I appreciate
0: the time and uh, it looks nice and sunny there it's it's been it's cooling down a little bit here in Utah but in my driveway like last week or or so it was 116 degrees and like I'm from the the swamps of Louisiana, so that's that humidity is a different thing. But like, regardless, when it's dry and it's 116 and it feels like there's no ozone out here, so the sun just melts your fucking brain. Uh, it's it's super hot. Yeah, that's a lot, man. <laughs> that's that is very hot. <laughs> Oh, my God, man. Well, man, again, it was fun talking to you. Uh, and,
1: yeah, I look forward to this Distillers album coming out sometime soon. And uh, we'll have to stay in touch. Yeah, sounds good. And thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, if I were a I'd say that record will be out by March. How's that sound? It'll, it's on, I like the, yeah. it'll be on Rise, Rise Records, uh, Distillers record. Let's say by March. I like it, man. Right on, brother. Thank you.
0: All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to Andy for rapping. Always a good time catching up with him. I'm definitely a fan of the distillers and love that good raspiness like I was talking about in the episode. So I hope y'all dug it. We'll catch you on the next one. Crash, bang, boom.